This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode of Homestead on the Corner was brought to you by our supporters on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, then please go to patreon.com slash homesteadcorner and check out our donor rewards. Good morning, everyone. This is Trevor Van Winkle, and you're listening to Homestead on the Corner. I wonder, how many goodly creatures are there here? How beauteous mankind is? Oh, brave new world that has such people in it. The Tempest, Act 5, Scene 1. These words were spoken by Prospero's daughter, Miranda, when she first sees the sailors shipwrecked by her father, her first glimpse of the outside world, a world she has never known. Though within the structure of the play, she and her father represent the extraordinary world, for her, Meeting these strangers is the event that eventually leads her to leave the island and begin a new chapter of her life. This is often the case when we enter a new and unfamiliar place. The first people we meet serve as our touchpoint to understand our new environment. This is why large, imposing, and often overwhelming places like churches, theaters, and even mega-retailers like Costco and Walmart hire greeters for the front door. For most people, Even introverts like myself who don't much like being talked to, a friendly face and a warm greeting helps to ease you into a new and unfamiliar environment. Even the people at the box offices of larger venues give a human context to what could be an imposing structure, helping to ground it in our normal experience. If you went to college and lived in a dorm, you probably understand that the behavior of the welcome staff, RAs, and your roommates was one of the clearest indicators of whether you'd fit in there, or if they even wanted you to. The way they talked and acted around you gave you a clear idea of whether this new environment was friendly or hostile. Sometimes it was the wrong one, but it largely defined your experience unless it was strongly disproven later. The same with a new job, a new group, or a new gym. The physical space, decor, and written rules matter far less to your understanding of it than people's behavior, social hierarchy, and unspoken conventions. People define our world in real life, and in story, characters define the story world. It's almost inevitable that after your protagonist crosses the first threshold into the unknown world of adventure, they will meet a new set of characters. A select few allies and enemies from the ordinary realm might follow them over, but only if they're also on a journey of change. More often than not, a new subset of the character web materializes at the beginning of the second act, some on the protagonist's side and most definitively set against them. The nature and roles of these characters helps to define the extraordinary world, 
and by understanding how to utilize them, you gain access to a new set of tools to help build that world. Before we begin, here's just a quick refresher on the use of the supporting cast and the character web from Lesson 3. With each new interaction, more and more facets of a complete character are revealed. Different situations require different responses and modes of behavior, all of which are part of the single, complete person. The character web functions to draw out different facets of complex characters, and thus push them towards change by awakening new parts of their personality. In other words, it's the show-don't-tell rule applied to character development and change. I think we all know how this goes, especially now that we're spending so much time on our own. Our friends all bring out different parts of our personality, often sides that we like and sometimes parts of us that we don't. Even so, those modes of being often feel tied up with those relationships, like we can't be that particular version of ourselves alone, or at least not without feeling self-conscious about it. Shared interests and personality traits are often amplified between two people and become more prominent when they're together, whether that's an interest in Star Wars or a common love or disdain for others. This moves the needle of natural personality shift faster in one direction than it would otherwise move, and after a while, you find those parts of yourself are much stronger than they would have been otherwise. So too with characters. Luke Skywalker picks up many allies when he flies away from Tatooine, and each one leaves a distinct imprint on him as he grows and evolves. Obi-Wan shares a connection to the Force with Luke, opening his eyes to the world beyond what can be seen and touched. At the same time, Luke's a farm boy, and he and Han Solo share a stubborn streak and a pragmatism that counterbalance the more spiritual Jedi perspective. Leia shares Luke's desire to fight for justice and freedom, along with a tenacity and bullheaded determination that dwarfs both Han and Luke's. All of these characters bring out new sides of Luke, and push him towards his eventual evolution into Luke Skywalker, Jedi Knight, and allow him to save the galaxy. Let's take another example. In The Count of Monte Cristo, Edmond Dantes' threshold crossing is a physical transition, as he leaves Marseille and is sent to the prison Chateau d'If on false charges. His stay there is largely defined by his enmity with his jailers and his relationship with his ally and mentor, Abbe Faria. The two have very little in common. Dantes is young, Faria is old. Dantes is uneducated, and Faria is a scholar who is seemingly versed in every field of human endeavor. They have three things in common, however. Both are wrongfully imprisoned, both need human connection and friendship, and both desperately want to escape. Their alliance and Fry's education eventually transform the young, naive soldier into the determined and ruthless Count of Monte Cristo. This is perhaps one of the clearest examples of the ally transforming the protagonist character. When the connection between the two characters depends largely on a transfer of knowledge and or skills to the hero, this ally is typically referred to as the mentor. The Merlin-Obi-Wan-Gandalf type is the most common and archetypical mentor ally, but it's far from the only option. By no means does the mentor have to be a wise old man or bearded wizard. Even a child can take on the mentor role if they have something to teach the protagonist. Nor does the mentor have to be perfect or at the end of their own arc. 
In fact, the most compelling mentor-student relationships are the ones that have the two characters on parallel arcs, with both learning and changing because of the other. Think The Karate Kid or Doctor Who, where the wise old teacher learns just as much from the pupil's fresh perspective and new insights as the pupil learns from their teaching. A running theme in these kinds of stories is that the mentor has become withdrawn from real life due to their search for knowledge and wider perspective, and needs to be brought back. In fact, the Doctor Who episode The Woman Who Lived nicely encapsulates this theme in another of Peter Capaldi's great speeches. People like us, we go on too long. We forget what matters. The last thing we need is each other. We need the Mayflies. You see, the Mayflies, they know more than we do. They know how beautiful and precious life is because it's fleeting. And yes, one day I will stop quoting Doctor Who in these lessons, but it is not this day. Other allies are more like our friends, people of our own age or in the same stage of life who we see as equals. Usually these allies either come into the story out of necessity or accident, the same way most of us make friends. The two characters are forced together by circumstance. For instance, Luke needing to hire a pilot to get off the planet, or Harry Potter needing to ride the train to Hogwarts. But they don't stick together out of circumstance, at least not for long. These allies have something in common with the protagonist that creates a bond between them. Sometimes it's as simple as being afraid and alone and needing a friend, as with Harry, Ron, and Hermione. Other times, it's a common cause or common set of beliefs, such as Marius and the friends of the ABC in Les Miserables. And in still other cases, it's a shared personality trait, such as the love for excitement and problem-solving that draws Sherlock Holmes and the retired army surgeon John Watson together into the crime-fighting duo in A Study in Scarlet. And, yet again, if you're of a romantic nature, it could be an emotional or spiritual connection between the two characters that draws them together, a feeling that they're one soul occupying two bodies, and both have what the other lacks. Whatever the case, some intrinsic, natural connection between these characters draws them together as allies in the first part of your second act. It should always be there, to one degree or another. Allies should never permanently attach themselves to the protagonist simply because the plot necessitates it, or because you feel like you need more characters. There must be a character-based reason why these two people would choose to work together towards what is largely the protagonist's goal. While events within the plot influence character actions, character actions should never be contrived to serve the plot. Doing this just makes your characters inconsistent and your plot weak. Character action must come from their internal desires, needs, and struggles, and when both characters decide to join forces, it needs to make sense for both of them to do so. The link between Kirk and Spock in Star Trek is the classic odd couple example, and whether you interpret their relationship as romantic or platonic, there's no doubt that they are two halves of the same character. The raw emotion, impulse, and action of an individual wrapped up in Kirk, while the logical, precise, and thoughtful side are expressed in Spock. Were the two to fuse in some kind of freak transporter accident, the individual that came out at the other end would probably be fairly balanced, or rather boring depending on your perspective. Because of this need for your protagonist and allies to reflect different sides of one another, it is helpful to think of your character web in terms of what you want each character to bring out in the other. Not only does this make your supporting cast feel more relevant to the story, it also increases the potential sources of interpersonal conflict. Think about it. The thing that draws us to our friends initially is usually the thing that ends up annoying us the most about them later. 
Sherlock's masterful intellect and unique perspective makes him attractive to Watson, but it quickly becomes a source of friction between them when he forgets to, oh, I don't know, tell his friend he's faking his own death to catch a murderer? That would have been nice to know beforehand, wouldn't it? Just because two characters are friends and allies doesn't mean there shouldn't be any conflict between them. Quite the opposite. When designing the antagonist, the idea of a unity of opposites comes up quite often. What it means, basically, is that two characters who are fundamentally opposed in some way are forced to remain in the same time and space through the structure of the story. This means that conflict between them is inevitable because they're stuck with one another and can't just walk away from their goals. Now, it may be just me, but I think that unity of opposites is also a good description for friendship. What greater unifying force could there be between two fundamentally different people than a shared bond of comradeship, friendship, or romance? What could be better at holding conflicting opposites together? And what better source of conflict and drama can you find than one built organically from real characters with their relationship at stake? In the book Story by Robert McKee, he says, quote, Nothing moves forward in a story except through conflict. The music of story is conflict. End quote. What he's saying is that conflict is the lifeblood and beating heart of good drama. Not overblown or melodramatic conflict, but a constant backdrop of values, personalities, and goals in conflict with one another. Conflict generates reaction, which generates change, which generates story. Small interpersonal conflicts that come from genuine expressions of character liven and strengthen your narrative by providing conflict on multiple levels. As an example, consider how many episodes from the first few seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation suffered from single-level conflicts arising from an external source. This was mainly due to strict restrictions on character motivations and behavior put in place by Gene Roddenberry, and the inherent difficulty of writing to his specifications. Often, the conflict was generated by a generic monster, alien or spatial anomaly of the weak that was incapable of actual human emotions or reason. This, unfortunately, became the stereotype of the series for years. However, compare episodes like The Skin of Evil with the series finale All Good Things. In the first, the threat is a slime monster that eventually kills one of the main cast, yet the episode feels flat and unsatisfying despite having what should have been a very dramatic moment. The second is a highly compelling, active, and utterly memorable story about time travel that ends with all the changes to the timeline being undone. Why did it work so much better? There are many reasons, but one of the biggest is the many little conflicts between Captain Picard and the members of the supporting cast. In the episode, Picard finds his mind jumping between the past, present, and future as he tries to stop another pesky spatial anomaly, one that will wipe humanity from history if it isn't stopped. In the present, he's the respected captain and leader of the USS Enterprise and her crew, and he has the implicit trust and support of his allies. But in the past, he's only just arrived on the Enterprise for the first time, and no one has any reason to listen to his crazy story about the end of the world. And in the future, he's an old man suffering from a debilitating brain disease that makes everyone think he's senile. However, respect for the captain and love for an old friend hold him and his allies together in both time periods, and the little micro-conflicts enrich the palette and stakes of the story as it moves the series to its final climax. Every scene should be some kind of turning point in your narrative, delivering a revelation or reversal that alters the course of the story. Whether it's large or small, something has to change or something has to be revealed. In storytelling, it takes some kind of conflict to make either of those things happen. 
Again, the conflict should not be forced into the mouths of characters in order to achieve a result, but the supporting cast should be orchestrated such that the natural conflicts between characters lead you to those moments of change. You may need to wait until your second draft to make certain plot necessities square with your character's personality and motives, but if you find yourself struggling between doing what feels natural for the characters and what needs to happen for the plot to advance, then stay with the characters. A delayed plot point might be frustrating to the reader, but an inconsistent character can kill their suspension of disbelief entirely, especially when they've grown attached to a character and feel like they know them better than you do. But enough buddy-buddy talk. What about enemies? What about the people on the threshold of the extraordinary world who don't want no outsiders here, thank you very much? The world of adventure is a world of danger, but up until now we've only talked about allies. Where's the risk? Where's the stakes? Glad you asked, oh hypercritical voice in my own head. Of course, it can't be all allies, mentors, and friends on the other side of the door. They help smooth the transition and keep the as-yet-unprepared protagonist above water, but they're the exception in their world. In the upside-down world of the antithesis, which represents everything the protagonist does not yet understand, these allies are outsiders themselves. The reason for this is simple. They are willing to accept the protagonist's strange and alien perspective, and that often leads them to be ostracized. However, because of this openness, they can serve as the bridge between two realms for your protagonist. Going back to the example of Harry, Hermione, and Ron, Harry is a literal outsider, taking his first steps into a world he's never known. Hermione, despite her intelligence and ability, faces sexist and racist barriers that keep her from joining her peers. Meanwhile, Ron is seen as a bit of a goofball and screw-up that no one really wants around. Yet Hermione has the knowledge of magic that Harry doesn't, and Ron understands the social rules of Hogwarts better than either of them. Together, they help usher the boy who lived into the new, fantastical, and dangerous world of magic. But every major character who isn't an ally is an enemy. From Draco Malfoy, to the Sorting Hat, to Professor Snape, to Fluffy the Dog, to Voldemort himself, the bright and whimsical world of Hogwarts seems to alternate between wonderment and terror, depending on who Harry's with at the time. The same is true of the extraordinary world in every second act. It's a brave new world in both connotations, fascinating and wonderful, but hiding a dark and dangerous side. The enemies your protagonist faces as they cross the threshold are the first clear indications of this danger. At this point, the main antagonist is already active in the plot, but their henchpeople and lackeys are the ones who confront the protagonist at the threshold. Or at least, whatever the equivalent would be for your main force of antagonism. For instance, let's say you're writing in the survival genre. Your force of antagonism is the extraordinary world itself, a deserted island, the arctic tundra, or the lifeless plains of Mars. Your allies and enemies would not be people, necessarily. Perhaps animals to which human emotions and motivations could be applied, but usually not other humans. More likely, they would appear in the opportunities and challenges of this hostile place. The finding an ally moment in such a story would be when the protagonist first finds food, shelter, and water, and establishes a home base. The first enemy might be the danger of starvation or dehydration, or a wild animal that's attempting to kill them. Whatever it is, these first enemies should be part of the new world and relatively low on the threat scale compared to what will come later. In the classic wrong man setup of so many Hitchcock films, the allies would be people who believe the protagonist is innocent and try to help them, while the enemies would be the police and pretty much anyone who might recognize the protagonist. 
In a domestic drama, the members of the household and social unit transform into enemies and allies as the situation changes, forming new alliances and breaking old ones. In a classical tragedy, the protagonist often cuts themselves off from their real allies and sides with false ally enemies who seek to do them harm through flattery and friendship. But in any case, these enemies who are not quite antagonists arrive in the narrative to challenge the protagonist and establish the initial stakes and conflicts without escalating the story too quickly. If the protagonist was forced to confront their greatest foe right away, well, any of you play Breath of the Wild? Know how you can wake up at the start of the game and fight God of Chaos Calamity Ganon with a tree branch and not but your boxer briefs? Yeah, that's about where your protagonist is at the start of the second act. They need time to gain the skills, knowledge, and wisdom to defeat their final antagonist. And once again, what's the only way to move a story and character forward like this? Through conflict. While usually not as well explored as the cast of allies, the cast of enemies should be compelling and well-rounded. In the same way the allies reflect and bring out different sides of your protagonist, your cast of enemies is often a dark reflection of your cast of heroes. Draco, Crab, and Goyle serve as a funhouse mirror version of Harry, Ron, and Hermione in the Harry Potter series. The children of Thanos in Avengers Infinity War are a superpowered reflection of the original six heroes, and Azula's cohort in Avatar The Last Airbender serves as an almost one-to-one -one foil for the main cast of Aang, Katara, and Sora. While you want to focus primarily on developing your protagonist and their allies, taking some time to humanize and create empathy for both sides is a vastly underutilized technique that elevates the motivation for conflict and drama beyond they fight because they're bad guys. If both sides of the conflict feel real and motivated, then the stakes only get higher and there are more sources to draw on for genuine conflict and growth. With a humanized enemy, you always feel there's a chance to reach out and put an end to the conflict, and there's always a sense of sadness when it doesn't happen. But when it does and it's done well, it can lead to a wonderful redemption subplot for that character, as it did with Prince Zuko in Avatar and Darth Vader in Star Wars. But that's a topic for another day. For now, just know that the arrival of enemies and allies is a vital storytelling step because of the nature of storytelling and our own psychology. The protagonist will face enemies in a new situation because they're an outsider. Those enemies may be people, or they may be impersonal forces that must be overcome in order to survive. In either case, even after the protagonist has made the point of no return decision to cross that threshold, the extraordinary world will resist them and try to push them back. Because of this, they'll need allies to help them through, either personal friends or helpers, or simply some boon or tool that will help them survive on their own. They're still just at the threshold, but with the help of others, they begin to advance further into the unknown. Yet they still have no idea of the challenges and transformations that lie ahead. Thank you for listening to this episode of Homestead on the Corner. Today's Fellowship of Friends and Foes was written and produced by Trevor Van Winkle and featured music from Lauren Baker. Speaking of new worlds, our brand new fiction podcast, The Sheridan Tapes, is now live on all podcasting platforms. To find out where to listen to it, head over to thesheridantapes.com for show links and more info. In the meantime, 
Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Trevor underscore VW for updates on both of our shows, and check out patreon.com slash homesteadcorner if you want to support our little production team. Next episode, the journey into the unknown continues as we explore how to effectively build the story world of the antithesis. New episodes of this podcast release every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. Well, that's about all for now. From the homestead on the corner, have a great day and keep riding. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.